0: Hello, this
1: is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you a special festive delights. Uh, Patrick McGarvey back with daily episodes of the podcast from January the 2nd. I'll be back on the 9th. But until then, we're going to be dropping our Leader of the Opposition feature in your timelines every day. In 2021, we rounded up every Prime Minister with Andrew Jimson. And in 2022, Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies has been telling us about every leader of the opposition who crucially never made it to number 10, from Charles James Fox all the way through to Keir Starmer. So let's get on with it then. Hit the montage.
0: The leader of the pack.
1: First up on today's episode, it's Robert Carr. He had a quite uh,
2: prominent career. He was um, Home Secretary under uh, Ted Heath, and um, as you say, yes, he um, his claim to be on this list was that he was acting leader of the opposition. Uh, for a week, which, as we've discovered, is um, par for the course for many of these uh, these leaders, uh, that we've had some of the, these acting leaders. Um, and it was in 1975 when Ted Heath was defeated by Margaret Thatcher in the leadership election. Um, and in those days, it was the MPs who had the final say. So we had the first ballot um, of that leadership election taking place um, in uh, February. And then. Uh, uh, a week later they had the final ballot and so in between those two ted heath actually stood down and asked robert carr who was at that time shadow chancellor to assume the duties of, of the leader so he was acting leader for that week and uh, <laughs> handed over to margaret thatcher
1: what why was that why did uh, why did heath not just do the last week
2: well, it is extraordinary. I think people have, um, have sort of forgotten this. I don't think it had that much of an effect. I mean, I think um, parliamentary appearances um, during that week were probably pre- fairly limited for him anyway. But I think you can see this as being the start of the great sulk. I mean, he's famously sort of after that time spent sort of several decades sitting on the back benches um, grumpily complaining about Margaret Thatcher. Um, and I think he, as soon as, uh, you know, she had the audacity to defeat him in the first ballot, he wasn't going to hang around to wait for the, for her to, to, to win <laughs> uh, the leadership. So um, you can sort of say that he didn't sort of uh, directly hand over to her because he'd uh, handed the reins over to Robert Carr, Uh, instead. Um, I mean, the the reason that that Carr didn't then remain in frontline politics was that he was very much of Heath's uh, wing of the party. He was very much a one nation Tory. Um, And he in his meeting with Margaret Thatcher after the leadership election, uh, perhaps a bit like Rishi Sunak, uh, he was (laughs) after a very um, senior post. He wanted to be Shadow Foreign Secretary and Thatcher didn't want him in that post. And so he he didn't get an offer that he, he liked. And so um, he stood down. Um, but he had been a, a prominent posi- uh, 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 minister up until that point. He'd been in Heath's government and had been um, Home Secretary for I think nearly t- two years. So uh, he was a significant figure and might have continued to be, but uh, he wasn't really flavour of the month under Thatcher.
1: It's a good, this is why I love this feature, because I have to confess Robert Carr is not someone who I would have known before. Mm. Who who was leader of the opposition for a week before Margaret Thatcher took over <laughs> is a great pub quiz question. <laughs> We're for, giving away all these for for pub a particular quiz niche for a particular niche sort of pub, but um, uh, but yeah. Also, I suppose you're right that you go from literally being homosexual as you know, chance from Rishi Sunak's case and. You know, the, the the a week is a long time in politics, and suddenly you're out of it. And, you know, never to, never to be seen or heard of again.
2: Yeah, he, he also we, we should say perhaps played some role in in Thatcher's um, rise because after the 1974 election defeat, when the Tories went into opposition. Um, he was made Shadow Chancellor, having been Home Secretary. Um, Anthony Barber, um, the Chancellor, stood stood down. And so he became Shadow Chancellor. Um, And after the October 1974 um, election defeat, um, Heath made Margaret Thatcher... Um, Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. So uh, she sort of joined his, his team. It was a demotion for her. She'd been Education Secretary. Um, but in that role, a bit like Liz Truss when she was Chief Secretary to the Treasury, she really made it her own. Yeah, um, And so she impressed a lot of Tories um, by being in the Treasury team and kind of being much more sort of... Uh, Free market and economic, uh, more of a a sort of Thatcherite, as we'd call it now, um, than her boss. Uh, And so, in a way, the fact that he was shadow chancellor and had her and his team played an important role in why she won the leadership
1: (laughs) election when it came. It's really interesting that Nigel. Obviously, we normally talk about leaders of the opposition. We should talk about prime ministers as well. Have you got your poem to (laughs) hand? I don't have it to
2: hand. Oh, my goodness. This, this is what I do with my Sunday mornings, Matt. <laughs> this is the, this is the, somebody, somebody tweeted, um, I think was it was Nicholas Pegg, t- tweeted something about historical rhymes. Yes. Um, and said, you know, that, so all these children's rhymes that you have to remember historical dates and things. Um, and uh, said we should have more of them. So rather stupidly, I started
1: writing one. Um, Are you going to make me read it, or are you going to read it? No, you can read it, as you've read it, so you you (laughs) know know the rhythm of it. Go on then, Nigel, go Uh, on, uh, on. This is This is your post-war Prime Ministers in rhyme. Here we go. Oh my
2: goodness. Um, Okay. Um, Winston Churchill won the war, Attlee tried to help the poor. Churchill in peacetime was banal, then Eden invaded the Suez Canal. Macmillan's economic boom was followed by the Earl of Hume. Wilson won twice, then was beaten. Heath made us all European. A final Wilson government, then Callaghan and discontent. Thatcher won three in a row before ending with a no, no, no. Major sought a country at ease, but ended up all mired in sleaze. Blair won a landslide and brought Labour back, won two more elections and invaded Iraq. Brown was famed for spending cash, then faced a global financial crash. Cameron's big society was ruined by austerity. Referendum in came May who tried but couldn't find a way. Johnson then got Brexit done, but soon the jokes stopped being
1: fun. That was Robert Carr. Now we're skipping ahead a bit now because for the next few years, the opposition was led by someone who then went on to become Prime Minister, whether it was Ted Heath or Margaret Thatcher or Harold Wilson, which of course counts them all out of this rundown. So next up is Michael Foote
2: born in, in Plymouth, um, actually to quite a, um, an established liberal family, and so he might have been expected, like some of his brothers, to go into politics as a liberal. Um, he turned to socialism, really, sort of, uh, when he was at Oxford, where he studied, and I hope you've got the bell there, Matt, he studied PPE at Oxford, uh, one of the very first people uh, to have are. done lovely. that. There we are, lovely. Excellent. Um, and uh, he, he then had a, a, a quite distinguished career in, in journalism he has in common with uh, George Osborne, the fact that he was uh, editor of The Evening Standard for a brief period of time. um, uh, Oh yeah, of course. uh, During the Second World War, in fact. Uh, And at that time, he also had what was perhaps one of his his most uh, significant contributions um, to politics before he um, entered Parliament, which was when he was one of the um, anonymous authors uh, of the political tract, um, Guilty Men, which um, satirised and um, attacked the uh, politicians of the pre-war period who'd um, sort of uh, been involved in appeasement. So um, he's a very, very significant um, figure in terms of his, his journalism before he went into politics, um, but he was very much on on the left, there are those who sort of know... Uh, his reputation will, be, will find that uh, not terribly surprising. But he, um, during the first Labour government of, of Harold Wilson, he refused to join the government and stayed very much in uh, internal opposition uh, before joining the um, before joining the cabinet uh, in the, the second Wilson government in uh, in the We're 1970s. a bit short of
1: time, Nigel. We need, just need to mm. reflect on his uh, the shortest suicide note in history,
2: <laughs> or the longest suicide note in history. Yeah, longest, um, longest, um, longest. Um,
1: I mean, it came about in 1983
2: because basically the Labour Party conference, um, ironically enough, had passed so many resolutions that they adopted all of those as the manifesto rather than actually editing it. It was quite ironic for somebody who once been an editor failed really to edit his own manifesto. Yes, absolutely.
1: That was Labour leader Michael Foote. He passed on the baton to Neil Kinnock.
2: Um, He said he's one of the few people who can time the exact date uh, of his midlife crisis, which he says was the exact period from when he was elected leader of the Labour Party in 1983 <laughs> through to when he left in 1992. Um, and, uh, he, uh, until Jeremy Corbyn came along was, um, was quite unusual in the fact that he was a leader who had fought two elections and lost them um, from opposition. Um, in modern times, we're a bit less forgiving uh, of our opposition leaders. So a stint of that sort of length with two elections um, and not winning is actually quite unusual. Um, so, um, if I just quickly do the, the bio bit before we get on to talk about his time as leader. Um, he was born in Tredego in South Wales in 1942. Um, and so early this year was his 80th birthday. We um, saw quite a lot of um, retrospectives and, and biographies of him um, being shown earlier this year. He was the son of a miner and a nurse. Um, so from uh, fairly humble origins and very proud of his, uh, his origins um, in uh, sort of from the Welsh mining community. And as he famously put it himself, the first Kinnock. In a thousand generations to be able to get to university a very famous speech that he made um, in the early 80s um, he gained a degree in industrial relations and history from uh, university college in, in south wales which is now the university of wales um, he was briefly a, for a few years um, a teacher working in, for the workers education association and was then elected to the house of commons uh, as mp for bedwalti in 1970 at the age of uh, 28. Um, so he was um, a left-wing figure um, and Um, was was then elected to the Labour Party's National Executive Committee uh, in 1978 whilst they were still in government. And then after the uh, Labour government fell in 1979, uh, he stood for the Shadow Cabinet um, when they were being elected and just failed to to get elected on. But Jim Callaghan, who stayed on as Labour leader after the election, uh, appointed him to the Shadow Cabinet as education spokesman. Uh, and he kept that role under Michael Foote, who was a, a good friend and mentor of him. Um, so he made his name during that period in the run up to the uh, 1983 general election with a number of notable speeches um, and uh, and was then elected in 1983
1: to succeed Foote after that general election loss. And that was quite the loss, you know, the longest suicide <laughs> note in, uh, in, in history, um, what was it that the, the why did the party turn to Neil Kinnock in 1983?
2: Well, I think that he his reputation was such that he was seen as sort of the next generation. This was kind of a classic example of a political party. Uh, which has just lost uh, an election heavily and thinking, you know, this is going to be a really tough job. We need to move to sort of, you know, a new generation. There were lots of sort of other people, old sort of hands around um, who who they might have gone with. But it was quite clear at that time, particularly as this was the first leadership election that was held under the new process, the Electoral College, where you had party members and trade unions having a vote as well. So it was much more of a sort of populist contest you might say rather than just the MPs in Parliament um voting um and so he came through as a sort of a young left winger um as someone who sort of represented the new generation
1: and I suppose it's uh, I suppose because most people now when they think of Neil Kinnock will think of the older Neil Kinnock him being Mm. the him being the, the the face of youth back in 1983 seeing off Roy Hattersley um is is a good reminder of yeah of what it was like back then, and then um, we should probably pick through some of his sort of greatest hits, if you like. I mean, p- perhaps I mean obviously one of the big things after 1993 was the was the effort to drive out the hard left faction of militants uh, and make the party electable again, and that sort of Welsh heritage, if you like, you know, his, his ability to make powerful speeches, which actually you know there aren't many in politics who mm. do like that. They one of the best known was this one. This is the speech of the Labour Party conference in Bournemouth in 1985 when he condemned what had become the militant-controlled Liverpool Council. I'll tell you what happens with impossible promises. You start with far-fetched resolutions. They're then pickled into a rigid dogma, a code. And you go through the years sticking to that, outdated, misplaced, irrelevant to the real needs, and you end in the grotesque chaos... Of a Labour Council, a Labour Council hiring taxis to scuttle round a city,
0: handing out redundancy notices to its own workers.
1: I mean, what a piece of, was well, it nearly 40 years ago now? But what a piece of wretched, like a, that's a proper speech there. I mean, delivered with passion, but so well with the, the grotesque chaos and mm. scuttle round a city. There's something about the word scuttle which has always fascinated me.
2: Oh, it's it's just spine tingling, isn't it? Really. I mean, I know people in all parties. Um, you know, political sort of um, geeks and, and apparatchiks. You know, you ask them what's their, the best conference speech, and they and and so many of them go for that. Even sort of you know quite right wing Tories will say that as a piece of oratory. And I think what was really important about it was that often you have a conference speech where you have to kind of creator moments you know people are trying to sort of lay out where they stand and sort of tell their story and and all of those things and sort of announce policy or something this really was a moment in itself you know you saw it happening in front of you you had all of the sort of um the kind of left wing uh, you had um derek hatton and others uh, eric heffer um kind of shouting back at him from the hall you know this was a, a dramatization of what he was doing in the Labour Party to try and drag it back to the centre ground. And this was the fight he was having. Mm. And the, the the drama of it, and as you say, just the, the pure oratory of it, I mean, it was an incredible piece of delivery and of writing. And it just all came together in that moment. And you don't often see that with a conference speech, where it's not just the sort of what he's saying and what that means about the current political situation. You're seeing it in front of you. This is a real sort of uh, representation of what's happening. An incredible sort of political moment in its own right, really.
1: And I suppose what's so powerful about it is the enemy, if you like, was his own side in a way Mm. that sort of Liz Truss last week setting out the anti-growth coalition when she was sort of trying to create an enemy and then attack it was you know like you said the enemy was there in the room Mm. less successful perhaps was his speech in 1992 Labour riding high in the polls ahead of the general election and uh, he held that pre-election rally in Sheffield I mean, famously, they weren't all right, uh, uh, and they went on to lose the election. It was a surprise uh, defeat to um, uh, to uh, John Major at the time. Uh, Neil Kinnock was uh, was critic, criticised by pundits, but some thirty years later, he spoke uh, uh, on the anniversary of the nineteen ninety two election. He spoke to Patrick McGuire, who was in for me a few week, a few months ago. Patrick asked him about that rally and whether it annoyed him that people still think that that's what lost it for. him. this is what Neil Kinnock had to say.
0: Well, yes, it didn't it so much annoying as just fiction uh, because, uh, first of all, the rally for good or ill uh, barely registered in the public consciousness. I mean, the other, much of the reporting, which to their credit has been corrected in some sources, is that I didn't say we're all right. It was a completely inane rock and roll concert cry of, well, all right.
1: <laughs> that feels a little bit like rewriting history, if I'm honest, Nigel.
2: Well, no, I, I mean, I have to say, I, I, I believe him in that. I think it was a, um, as he said, it was a sort of moment. You know, you get the crowd sort of whipped up and yeah. and sort of a lot of noise there, and he was just sort of shouting, you know, well, all right. But um, I th- what's what's really, I think, um, sort of symbolic about that, or sort of notable about that, is that um, he is very self-critical. I mean, I'm, I've had the. Um, the pleasure of, of, of knowing him for a number of years through our work at the Centre for Opposition Studies, of which he's a patron, and he's very self-critical. And when and when he talks about that 1992 election, I put to him once he'd said in an interview, sort of a couple of years after that, that he considered himself a personal and political failure. And I said, you've got to have revisited that because clearly, you know, you dragged the Labour Party from nineteen eighty-three through to nineteen ninety-two when it was on the brink of power. You must think that you know you laid the ground for the future. And he said, well, no, I don't, you know, I don't um, disagree with what I said but at the time. I did fail. There's a, a huge difference between taking a party to the brink of power and actually getting it to win. Yeah. So, you know, I think he's a, an extremely impressive character, really.
1: Neil Kinnock there. Now it's time for his successor, John Smith.
2: From sort of Chancellor of the Exchequer of the Week to Leader of the Opposition of the Week. Um, but we've, um, I think we can look at his his tenure as being the kind of start of the, long uh, goodbye for the Conservative Party um, in that Parliament from 1992. Um, but as you say, yeah, the, the parallel is really quite striking with Black Wednesday um, in September 1992, when um, the Conservative Party, uh, you know, trashed its uh, reputation for economic competence for a generation, really. Um, and uh, John Smith had was in a very good position to capitalise on that because um, he'd been previously the Shadow Chancellor he served in opposition uh, in various um, positions during the 80s, mostly in economic briefs in sort of employment, trade and industry. Um, and he served briefly in the previous Labour government as, um, as the uh, trade secretary. So he had a sort of economic credibility himself. So it was kind of the perfect leader of the opposition, yeah. really, to respond to that.
1: And how did he respond to it? And what lessons are there for, for Keir Starmer?
2: Well, one of the things that's often sort of lost is the fact that um, Labour were actually in a slightly difficult position after the, um, the sort of the pound um, sort of tanked and and the uh, UK was was forced out of the exchange rate mechanism because the Labour Party had actually backed that policy and Gordon Brown, who had been um, Shadow Chancellor. Uh, to John Smith at the time, when it happened, was actually sort of in despair. And he was, uh, you know, uncharacteristically uh, kind of shouting and throwing things uh, that afternoon because he was saying, you know, I'm going to be held up for this as well because this is our policy. So the lesson of it actually really is that um, voters don't really seem to notice that much if the opposition's policy um, was slightly different uh, or even in sort of, you know, if they share the same views as the government, which clearly isn't the case in this in this instance. Um, but they notice far more that the government has done something wrong than they do uh, what the opposition is is doing. It's much more about the projection of, of competence. Um, and John Smith, you know, just from, uh, we haven't really got time to go through his sort of full <laughs> biography, but, you know, he was, um, you know, the classic kind of Scottish bank manager was this sort of impression he gave. This very sort of reassuring sort of, um, Dour, but slightly sort of uh, you know very friendly kind of um, you know local GP, local bank manager, that kind of um, vibe, um, and so it's this this sort of sense of being kind of sort of dull but reassuring. So I think maybe Keir Starmer can take some. Uh, you know can take some reassurance from that that you don't necessarily need to be a, a sort of a Tony Blair figure um, projecting sort of you know wild excitement and enthusiasm when the government is collapsing people actually want somebody who is who is perhaps um, a bit more um, boring and staid <laughs> but sort of you can look at and think well that's somebody who sort of seems to know what he's doing.
1: And that was the story of John Smith which brings us to the end of this roundup. don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you get the next installment of our leaders